Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, home of the Firebird Book Awards, the Positive Change Podcast Awards, and this podcast, Authors on Fire. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, and right now I am giddy with excitement to spend time with a previous Firebird Book Award winning author and a current Positive Change Podcast Award winning podcaster. He is Scott Newman, and his winning book is titled The Night Before the Morning After, A Rock and Roll Diary of His Wild Life and Times. And his podcast, 27 Rouge, recently ran off with a few category wins for Best Interviews, Best Interview Talk Show Format, Society and Culture, and Second in Entrepreneurship. I'm going to share a little bit about Scott. Let's see. Um, He is stylish. You might call him a fashionista. He's a charismatic man about town who leads an active and vibrant social life. He's a former competitive ski racer, a Batman lover. Oh, he's also one of triplets. He was formerly an associate editor of Colette and graduated from Princeton University in 2021 with a degree in history. He has lived in Sydney, New York, Paris, Buenos Aires, and London, and he currently resides in New York. Scott, you are one of my all-time favorites. Welcome back. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it is my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Congratulations on winning the podcast award. Thank you. When I saw it, I thought you might have made some kind of clerical error. (laughs) I was was very pleasantly surprised with the award, so thank you. And there's little that I could add, to be honest, to the the long bio that you uh, (laughs) gave at the beginning with Batman and Buenos Aires and Sydney. Honestly, I think you know my life perhaps better than I do. (laughs) And I'm not a stalker or anything like that, so don't worry. I'm glad you said that because it was kind of my rendition of an introduction. But I have a few questions for you, and I call them the burning authors on fire questions. Who are you? I mean, how would you describe yourself? It's an excellent question. I actually begin most of my podcast episodes with that question. I say, you know, if I'm interviewing Alex or Stephen or, you know, Carolyn or whoever, I say, who is Carolyn? Uh, it's an excellent question, and, and the reason I start with that question is because it's very interesting to see how different people take that direction. Uh, Americans usually answer first by what they do mm-hmm. professionally as a career, uh, but then you get people sometimes, you know, they say, uh, I'm a husband, or I'm a father, or I'm an artist, um, or X, Y, Z. But, wow, who is Scott? Uh, I am an artist. Uh, a writer, a podcaster, uh, a sharer of ideas, a creator of conversation. Um, I am an American through and through. I've lived all around the world. Uh, and to be honest, <clears throat> American cities are not uh, among <clears throat> the favorite cities in which I've uh, existed. But I am absolutely an American. Um, and there's no, there's no shaking that, uh, I read this great, this great book called Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller, um, about a bunch of American expats running around Paris in the thirties. Um, and the the sort of Americanness was just a defining piece of who they were and their experience. Um, 
there's, you know, there's been some phenomenal American writers who are able to capture this in some way. Uh, Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, um, Henry Miller certainly writes about America from outside of America, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, most recently, I'm, I'm looking at my, my stack of books next to me. I read a great book uh, by Otessa Moshfeg called My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is phenomenal and I think captures a certain kind of New York American aesthetic in a way. But as to who I am, uh, I am a Batman enthusiast, so we'll leave that. I am an artist and I am an American. That's what I would have to say for now. But you ask me tomorrow and the answer will probably be different. And that's okay. That's okay. You don't want to be the same person all the time uh, because there's so many facets to a human. Uh, you really can't answer that question. So I, I enjoyed that you said creator of conversation. That Not many people would think to phrase it that way, but uh, you definitely do that within your podcast, which we will get to in a minute. Why do you love Batman? Why do I love Batman? Among other reasons, you know, there's this, there's this trope that you have to, when you enter a novel or a film, you have to engage in a kind of willing suspension of disbelief. I forget who, who coined that term. Um, but I never liked Superman films, Green Lantern films, whatever. I like Batman because Batman could exist. Batman is any of us. Um, granted, he's a billionaire. Uh, with a lot of expensive cars and toys. But a reason I liked Batman, I think, is, is a couple of reasons. One is that a person can contain multitudes. He's both Bruce Wayne, businessman, and Batman, the superhero. Two, he I don't have to suspend my disbelief because he doesn't have superpowers. It's not, you know, science fiction. Um, and three, I suppose why I like Batman is that he represents something. And while the Christopher Nolan films were better than, I've actually never read the comic. Um, and I'm not huge on Batman. I just, you know, I like him. Um, I, well, I prefer the Christopher Nolan films to the, the most recent uh, uh, film, The Batman with Robert Pattinson. I forgot who directed that. Um, both of them encapsulate quite effectively this notion that Batman stands for something. He stands for integrity. Uh, he stands for valor. Uh, and he stands for the quote unquote, like the best of the citizens. Now, I mean, this gets into some complex moral issues. And I've written about some of these of like Batman is a vigilante and he breaks the law. He breaks the very laws that he is upholding and his upholding of them. So that's, that's hypocritical. Um, but I guess it's just that people believe in him, kids believe in him, uh, and he's kind of a, a hero. So I think being someone that can inspire belief in others is deeply appealing to me, and that's part of why I like Batman. Oh, as you were saying that, it makes me want to ask you another question. Where are you going? And maybe that's tied to what do you stand for? What do you want to be known for? Where is your current journey taking you? And I'll just let you answer uh, that. I think this afternoon, I'll probably take a flight to Ohio and take care of your cats for you because I know you're coughing. Um, you know, take them for a walk, feed them, play with them, all of that. And that's the answer. 
Um, no, no. Um, Thank you, though. You're welcome. You're welcome to show up. <laughs> it's it's quite sunny in New York, so I I, I won't be leaving, leaving. Until, until the clouds come out. But uh, and I won't I won't show up on a night in Ohio. You'll you'll have plenty of warning when I get there. <laughs> um, but no, um, that's that's a good question. Where am I going? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that's okay. Yes. I'm not headed towards a particular destination. You know, there's, there's this, um, there's this old Harvey Specter quote. Harvey Specter was a character in the television show Suits where he says, I don't have dreams. I have goals. And for me, it's very much the same. I, Decide that I want to do something, and then I breathe life into the idea, whatever that idea is, however kind of cockamamie it is. Like, um, I think about it, and I've, I've, I've become much more thoughtful about it in recent years, but I decided I wanted to write a book. And, you know, I was 20, I was 21. I was 20 when I started writing the book. Um, the 2021, I don't remember. Time, time gets away from mm-hmm. me now. Uh, and, you know, people said, well, you know, you can't write a book. You're in school. You're too young. When are you going to have time? Nobody's going to read it. This, that, the other thing. Um, and I said, you know, this, I'm just going to do it. Um, it, it remind, you know, I, I wanted a European passport. Um, and I have some European ancestry. But uh, it's... It's, you know, imagine, you know, it's, it's hard to get a passport. Um, it's a lot of bureaucratic nonsense. Um, it takes a while. Uh, and I looked at basically every Schengen country in Europe <laughs> to see where I might be eligible for a passport through ancestry. I eventually got one. Uh, I found a way to get one and got it. Uh, I'm working on a couple of projects now that, you know, I don't want to uh, jinx by talking about them before before they're ready. The, the, going back to the Harvey Specter thing of having goals, not dreams, I find things and then breathe life into them. And behind it all, there is a kind of grand strategy of creating things that didn't exist before and being good to people, being kind. I think part of human flourishing, and this is a concept that I'm very big on, um, part of human flourishing is being a good person, going to bed at night, being proud of who you are and what you did that day and the way you interacted with other people. Um, so I could tell you the projects I'm currently working on. Um, and I could tell you where I'm going in the immediate future, which, um, unfortunately is not in fact, Ohio. <laughs> um, so I will get there probably during the summer though. <laughs> and that's a good answer. All right. One more burning uh, authors on fire question. What is your relationship with fashion? My relationship with fashion. I think that clothing is an expression of who a person is. Um, And it tells a story. It's it's wearable art. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not into like luxury fashion, uh, you know, fancy French-Italian brands. Um, I 
maybe and maybe I have a, f- a few pieces from over the years, but honestly, and this may come as a surprise, my girlfriend makes fun of me for this. I wear, I've been wearing the same clothes since my sophomore year of high school, and I have pictures of <laughs> me as, as, or eighth grade, I mean, middle school. Um, I have some pictures of me wearing a peacoat in eighth grade, and I have a peacoat hanging in my closet. Um, I posted on Instagram this summer um, a picture of me wearing the same silk purple pants uh, that I'd gotten uh, at a wholesale store. Um, it was It's called Sims in New York. It doesn't even exist anymore. Um, I posted a picture of me wearing the pants at 15 and me wearing the pants at 25. And I was a bit chunky back then, I suppose, but they somehow still fit. Um <laughs> I believe that clothing is art uh, and that you can communicate a lot through what you're wearing. Jewelry is the same way. I think shoes in a lot of ways are the same for women, Um, for men to a certain extent. But to be perfectly honest, men don't pay nearly as much attention to their, I mean, men. And this is half the three and a half billion people. We can't generalize. And my experience of American and, and European and Latin American women. Um, women shoes tell a bit of a story for a woman versus a man that, like, I, I guess what he's wearing depends. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't have rules on this kind of stuff, but I think it's an, a, a means of self-expression. Um, and I, I wear totally different. Style. I'll wear a suit one day and then I'll wear leopard print pants the next day. <laughs> Uh, now I'm wearing like a rugby polo, um, and ripped jeans, but I, you know, I've never played rugby, but I like the polo. It's thick. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, my, my wardrobe is eclectic. Uh, people rip on it and make fun of it because it has, it's very mismatched. Yes. It's very disjointed. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're staples from different pieces in my life. Uh, and they, and everything I own, I own for a reason. I, you know, I used to, you know this, um, and I think I told you about this the last time we spoke. I live life out of a carry-on suitcase. Now I, you know, I have an apartment in New York, so I have a couple more you know, pots and pants. Um, <laughs> but you, but, um, but for a while, I needed to carry what I was going to wear with me. I mean, I had a suit in, in the carry-on suitcase. Uh, I had a couple pairs of shorts, a couple t-shirts, one pair of jeans, like everything was bare minimum. Um, and, and that was a good way of living because I couldn't buy clothes because I, you know, I didn't need them. Right. Um, when I see people like saying like, I have like an online shopping addiction or like, I get it. The marketing is everywhere. It's obviously effective. But for me, I, I always just shrug my shoulders. with like, well, if I, if I buy that, I have to carry it, you know? It's a nice jacket, but what, what am I going to do with a wool jacket? You know, it doesn't fit. I need to take a collapsible puffer jacket and stuff it into the case. <laughs> um, I hope that makes sense. Like, yeah, it's a means of self-expression. Yeah. Uh, somewhat minimalist, yeah. No, I, I love it when I see your postings and just the freedom. That's what I pick up on. It's like the freedom to be me and not worry about, you know, does this match? And is this the style? I mean, it, it's just, 
It's a breath of fresh air, actually. So I didn't ask any of these questions with like a negative point of view. I know you've got good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I know you've got good answers for these. And I just want to share them with the world so people could snap out of it and be yourself and be themselves. So thank you. Thank you for indulging me with that. All right, we're going to get to, More than happy to get to your podcast. It's titled 27 Rouge, named as a tribute to the 27 Club. Tell us about that. Uh, so the 27 Club is a collection of artists who all died at 27. Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, uh, and Winehouse, uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, and so I was fascinated by this. Um, and I knew I wanted to interview an eclectic selection of artists. The people who all died at 27 were, they were mostly musicians, but there were writers in there too. Um, and I just thought, okay, number 27 is cool. Uh, two plus seven is nine divided by three is three. And I went triplet and Rouge just means red and French. Mm -hmm. So I thought 27 Rouge, why not? That was the name. I, I, you know, I came up with the name in high school. I had a senior column, um, in the, I had a column in the student newspaper, you know, this is far before you were born, Pat, yeah. um, back, back in the olden days, um, before, before the, the age of the internet, um, I used to write a column and, uh, and I called it 27 Rouge. So I sort of brought that title with me mm -hmm. over the years. And I thought that it was extraordinary what they were able to accomplish at a young age. I mean, mind you, these people all died at 27. Yeah. When they were able to accomplish it, I mean, they were all deeply damaged and yes. unhappy people. Um, but they were able to squeeze so much into 27 years that I just thought it was extraordinary. And the 19-year-old, they said, I'm going to live the next eight years, um, on absolutely my own terms. Uh, I'm not going to go off and work uh, as a corporate cog. Um, I nearly did a number of times because that was the thing to do. Um, but I think about these people and I think about their flaws, uh, and their, the, the deep pain that they're going through, you know, for what he's not dead, but for a while, I really liked Machine Gun Kelly, um, and I liked the aesthetic, and I liked the music, and I liked that he was doing his own thing. But when I listen to that music now as an older and more reflective man, uh, it occurs to me that there is a tremendous amount of pain and unresolved trauma for this fellow. And part of the music is working out the trauma. It's you know, you, what material do you use? You use, you know, the the cathedral of nightmares in your head, I suppose. Uh, I suppose that's what he used. Um, but I was always interested in artists. I considered myself to be an artist um, as a writer. And that's sort of what drew me to the 27 Club. I was in, I was in Paris this summer. I saw, uh, I saw Jim Morrison's grave. He died at 27. Uh, I also saw Oscar Wilde's grave. Oscar Wilde did not die at 27, but he had some very pithy quotes, one of my favorite of which is, there are two tragedies in life. The first is not getting what you want, and the second is getting it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so so that, that stuck out to me. And then back to your point on, um, on fashion and being unencumbered, uh, there's this old quote, um, if... Uh, if 
there is no, you know, if there's, I don't know exactly what it is, but like if there's no trail, leave one behind, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. make your own trail make kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily so that others will copy you and not necessarily to intent. I mean, th- there's this other quote. I forgot who said it. Um, I can't remember her name, but she's a brilliant writer. Uh, and she said, rebellion is as much of a cage as conformity. So when you like, oppose yourself to someone or you are you just like i'm going to do the opposite of this trend mm-hmm. that that itself is as un that's not being free that's acting that's retaliating against something that you oppose but the truly free person might end up in the same place as the conformers but be there because they came to that after their own thought process and deliberation not just because they were told consciously or subconsciously, implicitly or explicitly, this is how we do things. The fine line there, and you probably want to stop and question, for what reason am I doing this? I think everyone should stop and question, why am I doing this? And that was part of what living in Australia did for me, living, you know, I was living in hostels with other young people from all over the world. Um, And it occurred to me that a lot of the I don't even want to say Americanisms because everyone came to Australia with their own, you know, as a product of their background and culture and whatever, and created a very rich melting pot. But like we do a lot of insane things that don't make any sense. Uh, And very rarely do we stop and question, why am I doing this? Is this the only way of doing things? Um, And I mean, Think about like the inefficiency of local governments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like peak a peak example of this. But I'm talking about our own lives. Um, you know, if you people, a lot of people shower twice a day, but if you only want to shower once a day, like there's no issue with that. Or like, you know, I started waking up very early recently, um, like well well before the sun comes up. Um, and I had a family member say. Why would you go? Why would you go to bed at you know nine o'clock and, and wake up at you know five o'clock in the morning or in you know? And I said, why wouldn't you? You know, I have my own reasons for doing it. I think it's insane to sleep in until eight or nine a.m. At least for my schedule and my work and what I'm doing. Um, and so, I, I mean, that, that's sort of a minor example, but. There's a lot of times that people just sort of do things because they assume that's the way that it is to be done. That it's ingrained through when you, as you grow up and whatever. But I think stopping and questioning, is this not just, is this the, the right way of doing things, but like, is this the only way of doing things? Is this the right way of doing things? And then what works best? for me in my circumstances in my life, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that takes a little bravery at first, but once you dip your toe into that thought process, again, it's exhilarating and it's freeing to, to be who you are for your own reasons. Thank you for talking about these things. I know it really doesn't have much to do with your podcast, but it has much to do with, well, who, it, does. it does because it has much it to do with who you are and, and, and that defines the podcast. Yeah. It, all these themes come up again and again in the podcast. And what I realized is, I mean, there's this quote from Mary Kay Ash, the first step is the hardest. And that's absolutely true. And it has been true of my experience. There was a lot of things that I have done over the years that felt impossible until 
they were done. There's this quote from, um, there's a great movie, Bleak, for this, with Miles Teller, where he's playing, Vinzi, he's playing Vinny Pazienza, who's his boxer who got paralyzed, or he, he broke his neck, and then he, you know, nursed to recovery and boxed again after breaking his neck, which is like, nobody does that. <laughs> um, and there's a scene with the reporter at the end uh, where she says, uh, uh, what's the biggest lie that you were ever told? And he says, it's not that simple. And she says, what's not that simple? And he says, no, that's the biggest lie I was ever told. Uh-huh. It's not that simple. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely true. Um, when people say it's not that simple, what about this? What about that? I can't because there's a lot of I can't. You know, I listen to a poem every morning called The Man Who Can. Um, and it's, you know, the first line is can't is the worst word that's written or spoken, doing more harm here than slander or lies. It's like there is no can't and there also is no should. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to do something and you want it bad enough, you will find a way to do it. Or you won't, and because of you're afraid of whatever, and you'll live thinking about it. But I think living on the other side of that, of taking the first step, uh, is a much more fulfilling, robust, and virtuous life for you and for everyone around you. Exactly. I want to get back to your podcast, and and this this might seem a little weird, but then I'm allowed to be weird. If I had to use one word to describe your podcast, I would say that it is evocative. And I want to explain what happens to me (laughs) in my mind when I listen to your show, not when I watch it, but if I just listen. When I listen to your shows, I mentally see you and your guest in like a classy club lounge sipping scotch and it's the room is smoky and maybe people are smoking some cigars and then I get a scent of some cherry tobacco maybe from a lone pipe smoker somewhere in the corner just you and your guests spending the afternoon trying to figure out the meaning of life and I know that's not what happens but that's where I go and if you know any cigar lounges that have (laughs) a sufficient audio set up please let me know because I'll be doing my future interviews and those. Um, no, I think that there's a certain chumminess, there's a certain ease that I am able to put people to, not everyone, um, but I grew up in an environment that was not at all, uh, I don't. I, I think easy is not the right word, but it was not a calm environment. Um, it was... Uh, frantic and filled with a lot of noise and a lot of motion uh, and a lot of um, la- lack, a total lack of tranquility. Okay. And so when I, and that was quite difficult for me as, as a teenager. Um, in fact, I mean, at, at, at multiple times, I I left. Even as 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 an older person, I left. I you know, I went to France, I went to Argentina, I went to, and there were pulls as well. It wasn't just push factors. But when I when I talk to people, um, I want to put them at ease. I want to let them know that hey, it's okay. Like this isn't a gotcha interview. That's my least favorite kind of interview. I refuse to participate in that kind of journalism. 
Um, and if we're talking about institutions, that's one thing. But if the whole like coming down on one person, not that it doesn't need to be done, not that bad behavior doesn't need to be policed, but I will not be the one, you know, mm-hmm. writing an expose on someone. Um, I just, I don't want to be the kind of person who does that. And so when I'm interviewing people, it's not to get them. It's not to catch them in a lie. Um one of my favorite journalists is uh, is David Samuels. Um, I've had him on the podcast. I just finished this wonderful collection of essays by him called Only Love Can Break Your Heart, which is his magazine writing career uh, in the 90s, um, writing for Harper's and The Atlantic and The New York Times Magazine and a whole bunch of other places. Um, and he didn't have to make an argument, really. He, like Joan Didion, would just situate himself with everyone from demolition, like a family that does demolitions all over the United States, to dog track betters, to uh, a guy who flies blimps around. Uh, and he was so pleasant and agreeable um, that these people like opened up to him. And so I'm, I'm not trying to like lull people into a sense of false comfort or anything, sure. but... I'm genuinely curious to be invited into these people's worlds, mm-hmm. whether that's the classical music director like Benjamin Crocker or a Serbian rock star like Yvonne Fierci, um, or a journalist like David Samuels. Um, I try to put people at ease by being friendly and being calm, and I think that lends itself to a discussion that is not adversarial, even if we disagree, and is more uh, a path to discovery. Like, my goal is that we both come out of there uh, having learned something or having realized something or having uh, fused a couple of connections that maybe were not fused before, if that makes sense. And occasionally, with the Serbian rock star, we were drinking schnapps, but... (sighs) Usually, uh, there's no scotch or cigar. Oh, <laughs> perhaps it should be incorporated in the future, though. <laughs> How about it just lives in my mind? How's that? <laughs> that's, that's, you know, one of my favorite places. Exactly. And I learned so much from your podcast. The most recent one I learned was to apply moisture before having your cocktail. Oh, yes. From, from, um, uh, Martin, uh, moisturizer from Martin Hudak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. We we were drinking espresso martinis in that right. interview. Actually, <laughs> Martin Martin is a brand ambassador for Mr. Black, which right. is like a coffee liqueur uh, brand, and he brought us canned espresso martinis, which we drank on a sunny <laughs> afternoon in Sydney. Which goes against my rule of not day drinking, but yes. Martin came and. Martin brought me a cocktail, so I I wasn't in a position to refuse. (laughs) Not at all. Oh, my gosh. So, Scott, you won for best interviews, and half of a good interview is a quality guest, which uh, you seem to find. And I know we'll be having a lot of podcasters tuning into this conversation. Share with us how you gather such a cultivated crowd. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, I do all my own guest selection. I have a team that has built the podcast with me, but I've never outsourced guest selection. And the reason for that is that when I started the podcast, I basically just wanted to 
talk with people who I found to be interesting. Mm -hmm. The podcast itself was an excuse to talk with people. Ah. Um, It was an excuse to get to people who I wanted to get to. Um, And it was easier for me to say, come on my podcast, than come and talk with me on Tuesday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now, I mean... The, the the way I found some of these people there are just I've lived all over the place and the uh-huh. guests are all over the place. Um, Martin is from Slovakia, but he lives in Australia. Benjamin is from Australia, but he lives in Texas. Um, Benjamin Crocker. Um, I take people who I find to be interesting. Sometimes they're journalists. Often they've written a book, not always. Um, and I keep a list of them. Sometimes it's people I meet. And my travels and adventures, sometimes it's uh, an article I read, sometimes it's a professor uh, whose research I'm particularly interested in, Um, but there's no formula to it necessarily. Sometimes it's like internet native people, like YouTubers, or or, or like more like I discovered them through the internet. I discovered this guy who works on like creating offshore bank accounts and getting you multiple passports. I found him because I was reading about how to do that myself and I saw like an ad for him. Um, but it's basically people who I want to talk to and the podcast is just a nice excuse. And that's very honest. All right. So beyond the podcast, you also publish a Substack and you advise clients on digital nomadism and elite U.S. college admissions. So those are businesses that I was sort of toying with, thinking about running as as a kind of service, as a sort of uh, bespoke consulting mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, last year, I haven't really been doing a lot of that. Okay. Um, I might I might start again, but the idea is basically selling what you know how to do. Yes. I knew I know how to live out of a carry on suitcase and get visas and. Uh, sort out, you know, like remote work and that kind of stuff um, for people who are interested in living arrangements and uh, like short-term furnished living arrangements in different cities. Um, I just have a lot of experience doing that mm-hmm. because because I've done it. Right. Um, so I thought maybe I'll create a business where I like can sort of serve as a sounding board for people who uh, our corporate uh, workers in you know New York or Detroit or wherever, but then decide that they actually would prefer to be corporate workers in Bali, um, and then also talk about like the realities of living as a digital nomad, which is mm-hmm. not <laughs> just margaritas on the beach. Um, you're going to have problems and, and difficulties and stress anywhere you go. It's it's, it's sort of like pick your problems kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought about like advising people on that because it's something I've done. And then elite U.S. college admissions, I still might start this business. Um, I was admitted to almost all of the Ivy League schools. I was admitted to six out of eight uh, and a bunch of other top schools, Pomona and UVA and Williams, uh, Duke, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, and I thought about creating a kind of college counseling slash coaching business where rather than just give the kids advice on how to get in in an ever increasingly competitive landscape of, you know, getting down, these are all single digit, all the schools I just mentioned have single digit acceptance rates. Um, 
rather than just telling the kids, like, quote, first of all, how to, there's no one way to get in, but helping them maximize their chances of getting in, which are already very low Slim, for anybody right. <laughs> just by, by design. Um, or, but that's just the numbers. Um, but give them advice on like what I would do differently if I could do college over. Um, one of the great failings of elite education in the United States is that instead of producing world-changing mavericks and entrepreneurs and politicians and scientists and really thoughtful people who are going to affect change, affect positive change and breathe life into American ideals, we instead and we instead sort of adopt this conformist culture. William Wright wrote a book in the 50s called The Organization Man, which said that for all, Ameri- for all of America's vaunting about individuality, it's actually a pretty conformist nation. Yes. Um, and at the top, um, at the elite schools, kids generally tend to go into one of five industries, investment banking, uh, consulting, tech, law, or medicine. medicine. Um, law and medicine is, is, is school. Um, there's not a lot of kids staying on to be in academia. There's not a lot of kids going on to work in policy and do like positive policy work, whether on the nonprofit level or the government level. And there's not a lot of kids, you know, going off to become scientists or entrepreneurs and mavericks. And I've written about this and Bill Dershowitz wrote a book about this called Excellent Sheep, the Miseducation of the American Elite. But I, I guess I would just want to take the kids in high school before they get to, you know, Dartmouth or Princeton or Harvard and say, look, you can do anything. You can live anywhere and you can make a decent living and a decent life for yourself working outside of what the majority of your peers are going to be working in. And that for me would be, I mean, I don't think saving these kids is the right word because for some people, investment banking is is the right thing to do. I know a number of people who really enjoy it and love it and are very good at it. Um, but for a lot of kids, they're not being thoughtful. They're not thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to work 100 hours a week in a job that I hate and makes me miserable, uh, surrounded by people who uh, don't necessarily have the best values. For what? Why am I doing this? Because it's prestigious, because it's exclusive. And this sort of focus on prestige and exclusivity gets hammered into you from the very first days that you arrive uh, at any of these institutions. And so the kind of college counseling and admissions that I would want to do is to take 18-year-olds to 17-year-olds and say, look, you're about to go through some of the most formative years of your life, and there's going to be a hell of a lot of people trying to get you to conform. Don't. I agree with you. I think that you'd have to get these kids in high school before they're actually immersed in the experience. But then I also wonder, just by the very fact that somebody would be considering one of those colleges, is it almost too late? Are they already heading there for those very specific reasons? But then the the grand strategy is being perfectly orchestrated. If you are from a lower middle class or lower class family and you want to get a job 
immediately after you want to go to college for free uh, because all the schools offer full rides. And then immediately after college, get six figures, which is more money than your family has ever made in a year. And, you know, send half of it back home and use the other half to to save and to live in to live in New York or Chicago or L.A. or wherever. Um, that's totally reasonable and that's totally virtuous um, as long as it's conscious. Yes. I, and I'm not telling anyone not to do anything. This goes back to what we talked before about, about what we spoke about before, about being thoughtful about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, there was not a lot of thoughtfulness when I was at Princeton about why people were doing what they were doing. We were just made to believe that this is the thing to do. It's hard to do. And therefore that makes it good. But just because something is hard doesn't make it good, mm-hmm. virtuous, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, I hope that you could uh, give this some consideration because, um, it would be quite a niche. Uh, I don't think anyone else is out there doing anything like this. And I, I do think it's a conversation at least that needs to be had or available to students. Um, yeah, I'm interested to see if you take this somewhere and, w- and where it goes. So keep us posted. I will. I, I'm, I'm interested as well. Like a letter, I will keep you posted. Thank you. <laughs> What was that, your favorite joke, something about an alligator an alligator wearing a vest? <laughs> yes, yes. What do you call an alligator in a vest, Pat? An investigator. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. I love that joke. You know what? I, I said this to you straight from my heart, and it just popped out of my mouth without any control the first time you and I had a, had a conversation, and it just... I just blurted it out. I didn't know what the response would be, but I truly mean this when I say I like you. I just like you so much. I I really appreciate it. And I remember exactly where I was standing when you told me that uh, on our last interview. Um, I remember I was standing right by my desk in my, I can't even begin to describe the, the madness that went on in that apartment. Um, it was me and two Irish guys and a, Colombian girl and an Italian guy, and it was just mayhem all the time. But I was in my room um, and interviewing with you at like five or six o'clock in the morning um, because because of the time, the time. difference in Australia. Uh, and I remember you said, I like you, and it brought a big smile to my face. And then again, I listened to the interview when I was in Helsinki at like an outdoor patio uh, and I was at the patio in Helsinki, Finland, and I listened to this interview, and I, and I re- remember, again, where I was, and I remember what you said, I like you, and, and, and I smiled. I was like, you know what? I like you too, Pat. I know. Oh, my gosh. Well, I just felt like I had to say it again because I just so enjoy this time that we just spent today. I just enjoy so many things about you. So thank you. Thank you for indulging me with all of this uh, bits and pieces here today. I want to make sure we're not missing anything you wanted to highlight, though. 
First, I'd like to highlight an open invitation. If you ever come to New York, let's get some coffee. Let's go to the duck pond and let's, you know, feed the ducks. Oh, I'd love um, that. It's one, one of my favorite things to do is feeding the ducks. So let me know if you ever come through New York. Okay. Um, as to highlights, I'm working on another book. Uh, I'm not sure when that will be out, but it's coming. Uh, I'll, I'll, this, this will all come clear in time. Um, and I'll post about it on the internet. But if anyone uh, listening wants to contact me, my email is scott at 27rouge.com. I'm happy to chat with you within a region. You know, if you're nice and polite and you have a question that I think I can help with, I'm happy to chat with you. And that's, that's you know, that's really... That's all I would put out there. I think we covered a lot of good things. Good. Thank you. All right. Scott Newman, writingofficial.com. That is my website. Okay. Yeah. All right. Scott, thank you for today. You are very thoughtful and filled with thoughts and a creator of conversation. And I wrote down human flourishing. I love that. I need to think more on that and help people incorporate that into their lives. Thank you for being you. Thank you for what you do. And uh, thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for spending time with me. The pleasure was mine.